the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. More American women are dying in childbirth than in any other developed nation, and infant survival here ranks 33rd out of the 36 major Western nations. The World Health Organization ranks the United States in the bottom 10 of 180 countries in terms of providing children with a healthy, sustainable future. In this episode of Challenge 2.0, we examine why the health and survival of American mothers and their children is at such risk and what can be done about it. So we're very pleased to have with us today Kyra Naumoff, Dr. Kyra Naumoff, who is with Healthy Babies, Bright Futures. Kyra, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Kyra, when we think of poor infant mortality or poor infant survival, uh, we typically think, at least I do, of third world nations, developing nations, that sort of thing. But the U.S. measures of this are not very good. What sort of measures do you look at and what exactly do they show? Well, thanks, Jeff. Poor infant survival is typically characterized as the infant mortality rate. And infant mortality is the probability of a baby dying before he or she reaches their first birthday. Mm -hmm. And the infant mortality rate is actually the number of infant deaths uh, per 1,000 live births. And as some of your listeners um, may know, of all the developed countries, the United States possesses the highest infant mortality rate at around 5.4 deaths per every 1,000 live births. So you might wonder what's going on. We know like our lived experiences and research shows us again and again, really that structural racism and other socioeconomic factors play a big role in the disparities that we see in the U.S. compared to other countries. Has this been always that high? Has it been decreasing or has it actually been increasing, say, over the last decade or two? Well, I know with infant and maternal uh, morbidity and mortality, so morbidity is a measure of illness, um, the rates are nearly 90% since 2018. So the rates have been going up. And again, just to be a little bit more clear, a couple reasons behind the high infant mortality rate in the United States are our high rate of cesarean sections, um, let's see, inadequate prenatal care, and just general poverty, which is associated with many factors that can cause poor birth outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, and when we think of, particularly since you asked about infant mortality rate, Jeff, um, stratifying that or breaking that down by different groups, which is really mm -hmm. critical when we're thinking about this metric. And we look at that particularly by race and ethnicity, we see some really shocking differences, right? So African-American and non-Hispanic Black parents have 2.4 times the infant mortality rate compared to non-Hispanic white parents. And then when we think of just the infants, African-American, non-Hispanic, black infants are almost four times as likely to die um, as compared to non-Hispanic white infants. Um, and really, most recently, there was a crazy study um, out of California that showed the wealthiest black mothers have the same infant mortality rate 
as the poorest white mothers. So it's really showing oh. us that we have, you know, a challenge in front of us yeah. to rectify some of these injustices that have just that are just pervasive. I want to go into some of the reasons for that, but you said something else that I found uh, both troubling and also interesting, and that is we're not just talking about infant mortality, uh, but also rising maternal mortality rates, uh, and then also threats to the health of children as they grow up, as they moved out of infancy into toddlerhood and beyond. Uh, what are some of the key measures that you're finding there? Well, so similarly, I like to be on an even footing right when we're talking about all these rates. Mm -hmm. uh, so maternal mortality means the risk of dying during pregnancy and at, and at pregnancy, as mm -hmm. well as six weeks after giving birth. Okay. Um, we find, again, that our minority populations often have just a much higher rate. So black women are nearly three times likely as likely to die from pregnancy related causes as white women. And mm -hmm. you asked why? Um, well, they're more likely to have cesarean births. They're more likely to have their pain minimized or ignored. They're more likely to report mistreatment or suffer from uh, stillbirths. So, I mean, really, the bottom line is that there's a gap between our visions for moms and pregnancy and the current state of experience and outcomes for many families, especially those that are black, native, live in maternity care deserts or are um, underinsured by Medicaid. How do we compare to other countries on that? Well, they really are amongst the highest in the world. And it is wow. very interesting because our rates are so high, yet we also have the highest per capita spending in healthcare. So mm -hmm. you think that should be causing us to have better health outcomes. And two key factors that may be in part behind this for us is that the U.S. really does lack in maternal um, care. So we don't have the same midwifery and doula system as many other countries, which often has been shown to have more impactful care than the hospital-based care. Mm -hmm. um, we're also the only country that doesn't guarantee access to a provider home visit and follow up postpartum care and paid family leave. So those may be two other factors contributing to our high um, maternal morbidity. morbidity. Just out of clarity for our viewers and listeners, uh, Kyra then, Explain what a midwife is and does and what a doula is and does. Okay. Well, a midwife is somebody that can actually deliver your baby, and that can be in the hospital or the home setting. Mm -hmm. And a doula is known as a birth coach. And so that would be somebody that would come with you to your house and talk you through the process and, you know, be a support to you before, during, and after your pregnancy. So you have the education you need uh, to ensure a healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby. Now, if I can, you come at this from a couple of different directions. You come as an environmental health scientist, and you also come from the angle of being a mom. How does that inform and motivate your approach to this whole situation? Well, I think like many people, Jeff, we don't really know what the path of life or where the path of life is going to take us. Like, I certainly mm -hmm. didn't start out to reduce neurotoxic exposures. Of course, like as a kid, I was always interested in science and my dad was a small town family doctor, so often took me to visits, and that I think spurred my interest. And as I got older, I decided to uh, pursue a career in environmental health. And through that, initially started out looking at the linkages between our environment and wildlife health by studying Hawaiian sea turtles and land use change that causes the tumor disease in the turtles. Um, and I enjoyed that, but I really enjoyed working with people. So then I decided to pursue for my doctoral work um, an avenue to look at the linkages between the, the health of the environment and the health of the people, specifically by looking at the problem of indoor air pollution caused by solid fuels. Mm -hmm. um, and so then after finishing my graduate work, I worked in government and academia part-time while tending my three young kids. 
And I never did feel 100% home in academia. And so after my kids got a little older, I lucked into this role here at Healthy Babies Bright Futures. And I say lucked in because it really is a great fit for me both personally and professionally. I am a mom to one of these kids, one of the one in six kids that has a neurodevelopmental delay. Mm -hmm. And so I have a lot of compassion for families going through that. So this role here at Healthy Babies Bright Futures has enabled me to, you know, uh, rely on my underpinnings as an exposure assessment scientist, but have that personal connection to the work and a little compassion uh, for the families going through that process. You talked about some of the structural problems we face in terms of the access to good health care, the access to follow-up health care, but in terms of some of the mortality and the illnesses or the morbidity, uh, as it's called, uh, what are some of the underlying environmental exposures, either in what we eat or what we breathe, uh, that are responsible for this? And do you tend to find that there is an underlying thread that connects many, if not all of these? Jeff, that's a big question. I wonder how much time I have for this. We don't throw out just softballs here. <laughs> Let's break it up in a couple of parts, however you think is best to address that. I guess so. And I'm going to have the caveat that I'm going to stay in my wheelhouse here a little, Jeff, because sure. there are a lot of issues for kids. Um, so let's focus on some of the neurotoxic exposures. And I do want to start off by explaining, like, what am I even talking about? Because, you know, Jeff, that phrase neurotoxic exposures doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, right? So by neurotoxic exposures, I mean coming into contact through ingestion. So that's, you know, eating, drinking, or hand-to-mouth behavior that plenty of young kids do inhalation, breathing, or coming into contact with our skin with a toxin in our environment that harms brain development. So that's really the issue here. We're reducing chemicals that harm our brain development. And this is kind of the key highlight to children's health that I'm focusing mm -hmm. on today. While there are others, this is one of the ones that really is amongst the most preventable. And so right. what are these chemicals? Like I think many of your listeners are probably familiar like lead. So these are chemicals like lead and others that act like lead. Um, things like flame retardants that are put often on children's pajamas to theoretically reduce the risk of injury from fire mm -hmm. or phthalates, something that we've heard about that go into plastics to help soften plastics to make them more durable. They're also commonly used in fragrances and other chemicals like PCBs, arsenic, mercury, and others. And so as a new mother, now granted that was like 15 years ago, um, I knew about mercury in fish and I knew yes. to avoid eating like too much fish, but I didn't know that arsenic was present in rice, like the rice and in infant rice cereal or in toddler and baby food snacks. So I mm -hmm. probably fed my new baby infant rice cereal when he was six months old. No, I would never do that again particularly considering that there's tons of other whole grain products readily available on the market. Um, so I think when we think about these threats to children's health, it's much easier for parents to recognize those visible threats. So, you know, you warn your children about crossing the street or you hold their hand going down steps or say, watch out for broken glass. But it, when it comes to things that are invisible, like these neurotoxins that are really ubiquitous, that's when it's tricky. And so yeah. that's, one of the roles of Healthy Babies Bright Futures is just letting people know that these are out there and there are simple, practical steps that you can take to reduce your exposures. Seeing as you brought that up, uh, Healthy Babies Bright Futures, tell us a little bit more about the group, how it came to be, and what the scope of its work is. So Healthy Babies Bright Futures is a nationwide organization, and we're a collection of different stakeholders. 
so academia, medical doctors, health practitioners, and funders. And we actually came together in 2016 after um, a national meeting, like, hey, what can we do to make some measurable progress on children's health? Mm -hmm. And there was an emerging consensus that reducing these neurotoxic exposures was a niche that needed filled and a good place to start. And so with funding from the John Merck Foundation, Healthy Babies, Bright Futures started. And we have three ways that we try to impact change. Mm -hmm. And so the first is research. And through our research, we have found as backed in consumer reports and reported in other major news media outlets that food is our number one source of exposure for neurotoxins for mm. infants and kids under two. And so, for example, you may have seen in the news that we did a, um, a nationwide sample of different baby foods, jarred baby foods from stores, took them to a certified lab and tested them, and 95% of them had heavy metal contaminants. Wow. Um, and it's really because of growing practices. Some plants just uptake those heavy metals in their roots, and it's a product of where they're grown or what uh, chemicals have been applied as pesticides on those fields. So that's how the toxic metal contaminants primarily are ending up in the foods. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've done the research and now we've created parent fact sheets to say, just serve a variety of foods so you're not unintentionally serving something like rice or sweet potatoes that has been measured in our studies to have a higher level of toxic metal wow. contamination. So simple steps that you can take um, based on our research findings. We also have a strong communications program because we can do all the research in the world, right? But if people don't know right. or parents don't know, we failed. So that's a big part. And communication is not just of our work, but of our partners' work. And then the third area is working with cities uh, across the U.S. on tailored programs that make the most sense in those locations. And that's the program that I work in, Jeff. Um, and we work with these cities because they are nimble, right? And they can often impact change and get people mm -hmm. excited at a more local scale than, than the feds can sometimes. Well, let me go back to the issue of uh, baby food, because I know when I first heard about your group, it was by reading some of the work that you'd done on that. And I'm still a relatively new grandfather. And I said to my daughter-in-law and son, have you seen this? And uh, I think your group, if I remember correctly, was involved with a, uh, I think it was called the Baby Food Council and ultimately chose that this was not the path that was being fruitful for you. Tell us a little bit about what led your group to that uh, particular decision and where you're moving now on that. Sure. I first, I want to compliment you. I'm so pumped that you reached out to, you know, as a grandparent yeah. to your to your kids to let them know, because I always think and I remember being a new parent, you're so overwhelmed by just this new being. It's hard to pay attention to all these other things. So good job, Jeff. I hope you're Thank listening you. to that as well. Um, and one thing, too, to like kind of clarify on the baby food example, and I know I did this, too. I thought, well, if it's not safe in the store, I'll just make mine at home. Like, mm -hmm. I'm going to do the very best I can. And even though that takes a lot of time, too, in between the, the midnight feedings and the laundry. Um, so as a follow up to the study that I mentioned pre previously, where we found 95 percent of our samples were contaminated with heavy metals, um, we did a study where we had shoppers across again across the country went and bought, for example, sweet but jarred sweet potatoes in the baby food aisle. 
and then they bought the raw sweet potato in the produce department and then paired those two samples and looked at well how much heavy metals in the jar of baby food and how much heavy metal is in that raw sweet potato the right. bottom line is it doesn't matter who makes the baby food the contaminants are just there wow so that's another nice message to share with parents to a save them the burden of making that food and kind of explain it really depends where the food is sourced from um, what the contaminants are going to be and so as part of this work um, we want to be collaborative right there's no bad guys like the food system is what it is so let's work with that and try to make things safer for everyone mm -hmm. so healthy babies bright futures along with environmental defense fund and cornell university formed a baby food council with leading baby food manufacturers and the idea was to come to a consensus about how to reduce the toxic heavy metals in baby food using best of, best in case management practices. Mm -hmm. So baby food council meetings regularly for about a year, we seem to be moving to some consensus about what the companies can do to reduce the contaminants and then the work stalled. Um, and it became clear that the baby food companies weren't really taking it seriously and investing the dollars and resources it needed to reduce the contaminants. So at that point, um, Healthy Babies Bright Futures, along with Environmental Defense Fund and Cornell University, decided to leave the Baby Food Council um, and direct energies to make more of an impact elsewhere. And okay. since then, we haven't seen much progress with the baby food companies in terms of them voluntarily taking steps to reduce the toxic metal contamination. Um, the FDA does have a new plan, which is called Closer to Zero, mm -hmm. and that's their guidance to reduce these toxic heavy metal contaminants, although that process also is very slow. Um, but we're working to provide comments and working with others to really try to light a fire under that because it makes a difference for millions of babies. Mm -hmm. It's just such a long supply chain because it's not just in the reducing and the baby food companies processing facilities, but it's working with farmers and getting more money for research about what type of crops uptake less from the soil, you know, awesome. uptake less of the fewer of those metals. And then also how can we treat fields like particularly in the South where they used arsenic commonly as an insecticide because it did a good job killing the bugs, but then it remained in the soil. And so that's awesome. a big reason why our race from the Southeast is contaminated with arsenic. So. There's just a lot of investment that needs to happen in order to get yeah. a clean food supply chain for all, not just our babies and kids. So as you look at this and as you've done your research and collaborated and communicated with uh, colleagues, what are the impacts of exposure to these heavy metals? You have children or infants that are eating the baby food. What health problems does it cause in them? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And I, I just wanted to start with brain development, right? Because that's, yeah. that's where we are. And our brain builds connections when we're born at literally the incredible rate of 1 million new connections per second. Wow. That's how fast this is happening. And the Harvard University on the developing child, you know, calls this the foundation of our brain and an architecture that sets the stage for the baby's future. Mm -hmm. And so throughout development, um, we're getting billions of neural connections and the pathways that we use are strengthened and those that we don't are pruned and this is a normal process. But when we get um, chemicals that I've been talking about, like the neurotoxins like lead, it really interferes um, with those neural connections and can also cause cell death. And so these um, uh, actions are irreversible. There's nothing that we can do really once you get childhood lead poisoning and it, it progresses wow. to a certain point to get back that IQ 
and everything that we need for a healthy life. Mm -hmm. um, the other challenging thing for the developing brain is that um, lead levels and other neurotoxin levels are often higher in children than adults um, because children eat more food and drink more water compared to their body weight as an adult. Oh. And because uh, they chew and eat objects around them like paint chips or lead containing toys. Yeah. Hopefully adults don't typically do, right? So yes, there's lots of impacts. And mm -hmm. Jeff, I can say pers at a personal level, I can share our experience with my oldest son who has ADHD. I mean, we literally did years of vision therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, uh, followed by skill building and executive functioning and customized education. So 15 years later, I can attest that he really is excelling and it's so exciting, um, but it wasn't without a lot of hard work and the time and resources that we had, you know, mm -hmm. to help our son. So I wouldn't say all families have that. Um, and I would also say that there's many academic studies out there too that back up these lifelong consequences mm -hmm. of exposure to neurotoxins. For example, um, if dollars speak to you, preventing just childhood lead poisoning in the US could be a savings of $44 million a year. Um, the estimated total cost of violent crime linked to child leadhood poisoning is upwards of 1.8 billion. So it's, it's like the thing we've heard a lot, like the prevention really does pay off, but it's, that's what we're working for, trying to, to shift, shift that mindset so that we go to the more preventative rather than the reactive care. Earlier in our conversation, Kyra, you were mentioning that you are paying, and I think you in particular are paying a great deal of attention on cities as opposed to state or federal regulations. Why is that? And what are some of the programs that you're working on at uh, Healthy Babies, Bright Futures? You just touched on a sweet spot, Jeff, another one. <laughs> I really get charged, as you might be able to tell, working with cities. And we focused, We decided to focus on cities because, again, they're more nimble. They sometimes have very dynamic leadership and they can draw a lot of attention and get quicker results where people feel empowered and energized mm -hmm. than often we see at the federal level. Um, so right now we have uh, 40 cities in our Bright Cities network. I wanted to share a couple of examples, three specifically from the West Coast, because I know that's where you and your team are. Mm -hmm. And so we had one fabulous project in Portland, Oregon, where a community-based organization worked with their local housing authority in an affordable housing neighborhood called Hacienda CDC. And they did a parent outreach program and talked about non-toxic cleaners and just how to reduce the neurotoxins in the home, um, eating a variety of different foods, using a doormat vacuuming, getting a pitcher if you need to filter lead out from your water, having your water mm -hmm. tested to understand if lead could be a problem. Um, and I'll put in a little plug if anybody's out there looking for a water sample kit, Healthy Babies Bright Futures does sell a lead in water kit where you take three samples at your home and send it directly to the lab. And then um, you can see what your lead levels are in your water. Um, and then you get a customized report for steps you can take at home to reduce that exposures or your utility may offer a free kit too, which would be great. We love it when cities copy from another one another. And I hear that a lot from city staff that yes, just copy because we're so busy. And that is a real challenge right. of our program. The city staff are busy. So the more we can share a portable model, I think the more impactful we can be. Mm -hmm. One of our first cities was Salt Lake City, and uh, they started a campaign called Pesticide Free 
SLC, Salt Lake City, and created a website with great resources and residents could pledge to not use pesticides and had a yard sign a couple years later, pesticide-free PVD for Providence, Rhode Island was born uh, using the exact same web template and infrastructure. So that's mm -hmm. available, freely available for others to use as well. Uh, as we sort of look at this in totality, what actions, and you've suggested some already, certainly, but what actions would you recommend parents who are concerned about uh, the exposure of their children or, my case, grandchildren to neurotoxins? What things could they do? If you were to say, here are two or three key things that you can do that would really have an impact, what would those be? Well, I would say, number one, just talk about it. I mean, I feel like we're all busy and to ask people to do a ton more, it just gets overwhelming. So mm -hmm. if you take one step, just talk about it, let people know. You never know if the new mom or dad down the street had no idea about toxins and baby food and now have right. changed habits for their babies. So just talk about it. Google it, right? And that's where you can find more information to share. So those are two easy things. Um, identify your leverage points, right? Like I'm a mom, so I know kids at my school and preschools and I work with cities. And so those are other areas of influence that I have. And then the last thing I would say, Jeff, is that I think everybody just needs to remember they're powerful. Like somehow we all feel like other people know more or have more authority, but everybody has a perspective and experience to be shared and 50% of the battle is showing up. So if you are really interested and you've talked to your neighbors and your provider and you find out about a city program where you could help talk to other neighbors about um, using something that reduces neurotoxins like the lead and water filter pictures or reducing pesticides, but a lot of cities have actions happening already. And so you could just take that next step and get involved with what's already happening. Mm -hmm. A lot of what we do to reduce these neurotoxic exposures has wonderful co-benefits or spillover effects. So mm -hmm. our ultimate goal is to make it easier for cities to take these actions and create situations where reducing neurotoxic exposures also mitigates climate change. Um, so that talking about reducing neurotoxic exposures is just as common as talking about adjusting for climate. Um, and so that's really where I think we should be going with this work. And I'm excited that there are cities already doing this, Jeff. Well, Kyra, thank you so much for joining us. Best of good wishes to you and your work and also in your family life as well. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk and please send any cities from Washington to me, Jeff. I'd love to, to be in partnership. We'll do that. And to all of you watching, thank you again for joining us on this episode of Challenge 2.0. We hope you'll join us again next week.